0: Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they have worked with along the way. Today, I'm so excited to present my episode with director Shelley Williams, who has not one but two musicals coming to Broadway this season. The first is the new musical, The Notebook, which she is co-directing with Michael Greif, and the second is the all-star revival of The Wiz, which just started its pre-Broadway national tour. In the past, she assistant-directed Motown the Musical, and helmed productions of Aida, Mandela, Ethel Waters' His Eyes on the Sparrow, Hairspray, and more. As an actress, she appeared on Broadway in Rent and Aida, and now, without further ado, here's Shelly Williams. Well, so I'd love to start us off by asking, how did you first become interested in theater?
1: I I think I first became interested in theater because my mom took me to see the national tours. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And actually, The Wiz was one of those national tours that I saw when I was a little girl. Oh. Yeah so that's, I think that's what first piqued my interest. And were there specific
0: performers who you looked up to or wanted to be like, or it's like that?
1: Well, definitely. I mean, I remember seeing The Wiz and it marked, you know, having such a remarkable impact on my life. So definitely Stephanie Mills. Um, I grew up as a musician. So I really thought that I was going to become a musician. Like that's really where my my passion was as a child. It really wasn't until the end of high school that I got into theater itself. I played in the pit of all the shows, you know, but it really wasn't until the very end of my high school career that I realized that I wanted to be on stage and not in the pit. And what made you kind of change your mind? Uh, I, you know, it's, it's so serendipitous. I played Dorothy in the Wiz and I realized that I loved being on stage and I had a very uncomfortable conversation with my parents because it was my senior year and I had been accepted to go to music schools (laughs) and I told them that I wanted to do theater instead. And this is after years of private lessons and playing in orchestras and, and, um, And we had a very uh, awkward, long, uncomfortable conversation that resulted in them saying, You need to do what makes you happy. Um, And that means that you're not going to go to college next year because you have not, you know, I hadn't applied to any theater schools. I took a gap year. I studied privately. You know, I didn't have a monologue. I didn't have anything, right? (laughs) Um, And then I, the next year, got accepted with a scholarship to Amda. And I ended up, um, you know, during my gap year, I worked at the mall, like I got some life skills. (laughs) And then I I got accepted to Amden. and I moved to New York and kind of the rest is history. Yeah. And what was it like moving to New York
0: at that age? Was it kind of a culture shock or how was it?
1: It was amazing. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. And the first time I was in New York, I was 16 years old. And I played with the Junior Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. And the Dayton Junior Phil was one of the first youth orchestras to ever play Carnegie Hall. And as a matter of fact, Steve Reinecke, who's the conductor of New York Pops, was in that orchestra. Steve and I were friends in high school. So the first time I came to New York, I was 16 years old playing in that orchestra. We got to the city and I was like, oh, this is where I belong. Like everything in New York. Just resonated with me in the way that Dayton, Ohio did not. I loved Dayton. My family's from there. I go there a couple times a year still today. But there was something about New York that just felt like me. It was my pace. I loved the diversity of the city, I loved the energy of the city. So coming back, you know, at 19, it felt like I was finally where I belonged. Like it just, the whole city made sense to me. That is great. Yeah, And in
0: your process at college, what was it like to sort of find out kind of what kind of roles you would be going up for and what best suited you and all of that? You
1: know, it was interesting that, you know, no one's ever asked me that question. I'm, I'm glad that you did. Uh, I I actually wasn't the person making those decisions. You know, at that time, it was very clear what a Black girl was going to be in theater there was no idea about can you imagine yourself in this role in my senior recital of the performances that we did i played two maids in scenes you know it was it was like these are the roles for black people right thank god that has changed you know what it meant was that i didn't get the rigor of like having check off or Ibsen, you know, in my body, the way that my classmates did. And so it's really important to me that, you know, when I'm working with students of color, that they are really getting all of the, the text in their body. You know, even if it's a part you may never play in your life, you need to explore the character. And you should imagine yourself being able to play those roles as the world is now able to do that now, you know? But it was, it was really interesting. You know, the, the songs that I were given were always songs that were traditionally sung by Black women in theater. Um, some things I didn't identify with at all, but it was very prescribed at that time. So it's, it's wonderful that during the course of my lifetime we've seen theater come so far in that regard. Right. You know, I remember when Audrey McDonald, you know, was the leading carousel. And I was like, is that even possible? Like in my brain, I'd been conditioned to believe that that was not possible, right? Yeah. And despite
0: the lack of representation, were you sort of imagining yourself as a director back then at all or? Not
1: at all. <laughs> not at all. You know, I've always been 100% present with whatever I'm doing. And then when I end up doing something else, I'm like, huh, what about that? Like, you know, I was like a musician until I was in theater. And I was an actor until I was a director. Like it just, everything that has kind of happened. Um, when the switch happened in my body, it was, there was no turning back. You know, once I realized as a musician, I wanted to be an actor, I, I couldn't imagine myself as a magi- musician anymore, uh, a magi- <laughs> musician anymore. Once it switched, when I realized that I really wanted to be a director, that my, that I had that um, the evolution of my experience had taken me to this place. I didn't want to perform anymore. And that's not true for everyone. I know a lot of people that go back and forth and I applaud that wholeheartedly. It's just has not been the experience for me. Right.
0: Yeah. And so coming out of college as a performer, did auditioning come kind of easily to you early on? Were you getting a lot of jobs right away or?
1: Uh, I have to say, you know, if you were to ask my, you know, 20, 21 year old self, I would say, no, it took forever. But in hindsight, I actually did, you know, within the first six months of graduating, I did book my first show, which was fantastic, you know, which was great. And then a month after that, um, while I was doing that other show, I booked, I booked my first European tour, which was a game changing experience for me.
0: And how did Rent come to be, which I believe is your Broadway debut as
1: a- It was, yes. I was working at Goodspeed Opera House on a play called Paper Moon, and Goodspeed is where I got my, my equity card. And while I was there, I auditioned for Rent, and during the course of that time there, I ended up getting, you know, four callbacks, right? And they were kind enough to let me, I was a swing in the show and the dance captain, and they were kind enough to let me miss a matinee to go to my final callback. And I booked the show. Um, and so I started with Rent as the dance captain for the first national tour, and then became the associate choreographer, and then the production dance supervisor in set companies all over the world for four years.
0: Right. And what was it like to be involved with something that was such a phenomenon
1: sort of right as it right at its peak? It was incredible. Um, when I started, so my my original story with Rent actually goes back to when Rent was in previews at the Needle a friend of mine asked me, I was coat checking at a Midtown restaurant, And asked me if I wanted a job selling merchandise at this new show. And I said, Yeah. So I was the hat and t-shirt girl. Uh I rent through previews, opening night, all the way until I went to Goodspeed. You know, I did it for probably the first three or four months of the show. Um, and so I I was there for that magical opening night. I was, you know, I'll I will never forget. I'll never forget hearing that score for the first time, hearing Gilles Singh I and just weeping, you know, at that time I had done regional work, I had worked on a couple tours, I had had, you know, cast members die of AIDS, peers, people I came to New York to study from, teachers had died. You know, when you're 23 years old and you're losing your friends, your castmates, there's just there's no language for that there's just pain right you're not supposed to lose your friends that young and it was you know as you know the theater community was hit so hard and we just had um no vocabulary for what we were feeling and then when i saw rent for the first time i felt like it spoke to exactly what i was feeling you know i was not a homeless kid on the lower east side but i did know what it was like to find my tribe and to fear losing them and so that show spoke to me spoke to a generation spoke to you know our resilience our love our commitment to each other um our passion to live and survive it it was such an important show and i feel so honored that it's a part of my history I love my Rent family so much. I mean, we're all so connected. And, and when we see each other, it's just, it's the best feeling in the world because we, we all went through something together where the art was really meeting the moment and affected our lives in such profound ways.
0: And did you find that it had kind of the same impact all over the world? Or did you find that it was more sort
1: of uniquely American? I did. Oh my goodness. When we opened rent in Japan, oh, I've never seen anything where it, people were lit. We'd come out of the stage door and people were just weeping. I mean, hysterically. I mean, it was so, it really did everywhere that we went, Australia, London, Japan, Germany, hearing the show, the score in so many languages, like it was, it was such a unique perspective to um, put up the shows and then come back to America and check on the tours and check on Broadway. And, you know, Rent was my entire life for pretty much four and a half years and it was incredible. And
0: how do you decide when to sort of leave a long running show like that? I know Aida had a long run, too. And
1: Well, Brett was interesting because I I was a performer and I became the associate choreographer and dance supervisor. I still had the performer in my body. So I would um, jump in and sub into the show as needed on the tours or on Broadway. So my debut, my, my Broadway debut was Seasons of Love Soloist on Broadway, which is pretty amazing. And that afternoon... I was actually putting up the show in Toronto and they called and said, we are actually down. We don't have any seasons of love, you know, uh, soloists that we can pull from. There's a car waiting for you outside the rehearsal studio. You're going to go home, pack a quick bag, grab your passport, and you have a flight in three hours. And I literally, I was like, I'm in another country. They're like, uh-huh, there's a car outside. You've got to go. And I literally like got in the car. I got to the theater. Um, I don't know if you remember or if you were ever around to see the show at the Needle Lander, but there was no curtain for rent. So I had them hold, I was like, you have to hold the house for me because I need to know which coats to sell and where I move the table for La, La Vie Boe. Like, you know, I knew what I didn't know. Every show is a little different. And the Broadway show had its own idiosyncrasies because of of the way the theater was built. So I get to the theater, and my flight was late, and it's after half hour, and the entire audience is on the sidewalk, and there's no stage door. For, and I was like, I can't get back there. <laughs> and the security guard like came and basically like lifted me through the crowd. They showed me which things to move. Um, I was, you know, I just got. They called places. They were, you know, the house was coming in. They put the headset on me. The costume designer, Angela, Went, was there. And she looked at me and she was like, switch shirts with me. And I took off the shirt that I was wearing. I put on the sh- the sweater, like cool little funky sweater that she was wearing with my jeans and my boots. And I walked on stage. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's 100% a true story. <laughs> oh, wow. And I had the time of my life. It was, I had no put in whatsoever. Like it was, I mean, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew the show, but every person I was encountering on stage, I was encountering for the first time ever (laughs) in real time. And it was, um, it was real. And then some people I met like at intermission, I'm like, oh, hi, I'm (laughs) Shelly. It was just such a (laughs) horrible It was really pretty wild. Some people I knew from doing put-ins, you know, into the show, but it was pretty early on in the show at that time. So,
0: yeah, yeah. And what was it like going from this sort of spare show of Rent to the very tech-heavy Disney shows like Aida and?
1: Yeah, so you know, with with Rent, Rent at that you you the question you asked me before was how did I know when to switch. And because I had been performing back and forth, I wasn't done performing. And and after we did, I probably I don't know put up five or six productions of the show, and I was like, I'm kind of ready to perform again. I, I'm you know I'm still ready to to do that. And I got a call from my good friend Jim Abbott, and he said, Hey, we they've been doing all these auditions for Aida. And, you know, have you heard about it? And I was like, I've heard a little bit about it. And I really wasn't auditioning much. And he said, we were in auditions the other day and Wayne Salento said, you know, what we need is a Shelly Williams. And Jim was like, why don't we just call Shelly Williams? I had done Tommy with Wayne. So I knew Wayne. And uh, and Jim's like, I'll call Shelly. And he's like, hey, are you still doing Rent? What's going on? Jim and I had done Rent together. And I was like, I'm you know, I'm ready to go. And he said, well, the auditions happened in New York they're still looking for an AIDA cover. We're going to be in LA next week. You know, would you come out? And I was like, yeah, I'll fly to LA. So I flew to LA and I did the audition and I booked the show and it was great because Adam was in it. Sherry was in it. Like I was back with some of my rent buddies, which was amazing. Um, And I, and I started that adventure and I really like, it was a goal of mine to, to, in an original company. And so I got to have that extraordinary experience. And that score is so beautiful. And you know, it's another it's another show where the Aida family really became a family. We were all so close. And my gosh, to see Heather Headley do the show every night is a masterclass. I mean truly masterclass. We had we had so much fun on that show. It was during the course of that show that I realized, um, interestingly enough, that I had lost my voice because on Rent, I had so much say-so over casting, over like, I was like, oh, what about this happens here? Or let's change this or, and I had found that, oh, I I, I have no say in the show. I, I can't make any decisions. And I realized for the first time that I missed that, that I craved that, that as much as I love performing, I love being able to mold shows and being able to contribute as, as an artistic eye in the show, more than I loved performing.
0: And are some of the sort of reinventions that you made to Aida with this revival that you're doing now, things that you had in mind even back then? Or...
1: There are a couple. There are a couple. Um, the, one of the first things I directed when I became a director was Aida um, at the Algonquin Playhouse. And I, one of the first things that, you know, was really important to me. And I went to, um, to Tom Schumacher and and asked to have a meeting. And I was like, I have some proposals I'd like to make to the script for my version. And he was like, well, that's very bold, but let's talk them through. And, and he was so accommodating. And he said, you know, I don't agree with all of these, but you should do them and you should explore them. And then I'll send someone out to see it, and he was true to all of those things, um, and and he got a very good report on on my production. And then he came back and said, "Let's keep talking." Um, something that was really, really important to me that has lasted all the years. Like ideas I had then, you know, I went back and I may or may not have a secret videotape of that show, and and I may or may not have looked at it um, before I started this production. And when I looked at it, I was like, "Oh, that's terrible!" Like I, I made some really, like, very young decisions as an actor. The actor, the actors in the show were all amazing, but as a director, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I thought I was killing it. Like there were things that were just like, "Whoa!" Um, but, but something that was really important to me was that Rodomays not be complicit in Aida's capture you know, it was really important to me to not perpetuate the idea uh, that someone who has enslaved you can be so easily become a love interest. That was like a fundamental thing that was really hard for me as an actor to play every night, because I, I think it reinforced this romanticism of slavery that I was never comfortable with, and I thought was rather dangerous in the world to put out there, you know? Um, so that was it was really important to me to ensure that we were protecting the sanctity of the ability for them to love plausibly right, right.
0: That is interesting. And so, as an actress playing the role of Aida, what was your process like of sort of finding your interpretation separate from Heather Headley's, but then maybe also there was pressure to be somewhat similar
1: to what she did or You know, I, I had a great, I had a a lot of great teachers growing up. Um, but one of my elementary school teachers had us write a, 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 a paper called why I am unique. And she really drilled into us. And I think it was like fourth grade, like super young, right. That. We can never be someone else because what we are is so special, it can't be replicated, right? And that someone else's version of special is Mm -hmm. their extraordinary gift, as is mine, right? And so I've never had this sense that I was ever competing with anyone. I never felt that way as a musician. I never felt that way as an actor. I'm like, no one can ever be Shelly Williams, I promise you that, right? You can be something else, you can even be better, but you can't be me, right? Um, And so I never felt, I felt like Heather's Aida was so extraordinary and mine could also be extraordinary in my own way. And I think that's what's given me the ability To not be jealous of other people, but to truly celebrate them because their gifts are their gifts, you know, like how in the world can I not be in awe and celebrate someone's gifts because I'm so grateful for the gifts that I have. Right, that is great. And so on,
0: on this revival of Aida that we've been talking about, have you been working at all with or talking to the original creatives of like David Henry Huang and Tim Rice or?
1: Yes. So David has rewritten the new, the book for this new Aida. And we're, we're he's amazing. I have loved every second of working with him. I absolutely adore him. And Tim, I loved him so much Tim has rewritten lyrics. He has been an extraordinary collaborator in every way. You know, you can't help but be in awe of Tim Rice and his, you know, his unbelievable catalog. And when it comes down to the work, he's like, he just wants it to be great. He's an artist. And it's great. It's, you know, I'm such a historian. I do such a deep dive in history on everything that I work on. And it's great to talk to him about, where did this come from? You know, there are certain songs and he's like, oh, actually this song was originally written for Amneris, but then Rodimay sang it in this version. And I'm like, what? Well, should we restore that? Like, you know, we went through and kind of, you know, well, it worked because in this moment we kind of needed something here. So we put this there. But if you actually look at the lyrics, they're actually written for this character. And so it was great to kind of go back to like the foundation of the show and and discuss the why, and then now discuss the impact of the the script changes and what does that do to the lyric? And it it was the most creative, honest, um, supportive collaboration to remake a show that we all love, Bob Crowley, as Bob Crowley's come back and done the, the costumes and sets again, Natasha Katz, the lighting. So there's uh, uh, Darrell Moultrie, who was in the ensemble with me, is now the choreographer. So every person who is like on the creative team was somehow a part of the show in its original form. And so we all come to it with a great deal of love and a great deal of respect for the show and a lot of hope for what a new generation can get from it. And, and the possibility that we can tell an even better story. And what was valuable
0: about premiering this production out of America? And
1: you know, if you had asked me that before we did it, I was I have to say I was a little like I can't believe I have to do the source production in another language. Like, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so hard. And when we got there, um, I I honestly thought we had done an eight-week lab in New York so that I could see the show on its feet and mess around with it in English before we got there. So I felt like I had a very solid version of the show. And in my mind, we were going to replicate that. When we got there, I was so inspired not only by the cast, but by the just the incredible opportunity it is every time you get to work on a show and you get to be a better artist than you were before. And I found that there is no way that I could just cut and paste you know, like anything because I have new humans in the room who are inspiring me to think about this in new ways. We have text that is a close translation, but of course, you know, just the, the differences in, in language, the differences in relationship, the differences in the two cultures require some shifts. So that's gonna shift the story in interesting ways. And we have to be honest to those in those moments. And we were teching the show for the first time. So then, it was all about you know how are we continuing to evolve this piece and and by the end of it, you know I'm enormously proud of the show. I'm so excited that audiences are getting you know able to see it. My my kids came out to Holland and saw the show and my daughter was there for I don't know about 15 minutes. She was watching tech and she's like, Mom, this is great. And I was like, Thanks. She goes. Are you gonna be doing it in English soon? And I said, like, yes, honey, that's the hope. And she goes, like in half an hour. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my gosh. No, sorry. <laughs> but she was so eager to like, you know, to to see it and fully understand it, right? Um but they saw the whole show in Dutch and then they like really got into the cast album like afterwards. And I was a little shocked. I was like, you haven't been listening to this cast album like the whole time. You know, mom's on it, right? Like they had really like, not done a deep dive on Aida until after they saw it in Holland. Um, but it, it is, it's is—it's really exciting. And we had a, a production meeting um, last week about Aida and its next iteration. And we're all excited about, even more things that we can do to the show you know i'm happy that it was beautifully received i'm happy that audiences are loving it and it was just it was glowing to finally birth that show and now i can't wait to continue to watch this child grow and iterate you know and and on every production that we do after this yes well i would love to see it i hope to be able
0: to in english (laughs) yes And so after you made this transition to solely being a director, after being in AIDA, a sort of similar question to what I asked before, did you find that it came kind of naturally to get jobs as a director or was it kind of a struggle to switch how you were perceived?
1: Um, It was, what was great is that I had a reputation and I knew people in the business. So that part was great that, you know, I wasn't starting from scratch. Um, And I had like, unbeknownst to me, I had a number of directors and choreographers that would say, even when they were doing readings while I was doing AIDA, hey, would you assist me on this? So I kind of think that a lot of people knew I was gonna be a director long before I did, right? (laughs) It was like, huh, that's really interesting. I've been assisting on projects for you. Like it was so like bananas. I, I did the thing I did leverage in my relationships was I called everyone and said, can I assist you? I knew I had a lot to learn and I wanted to observe. I wanted to study. I wanted to be inside productions. Really, I, I had a good idea of how to tech shows from doing so many years of putting up rent productions. So I wasn't coming in cold. Um but I knew it more from a choreographer's perspective than a director's perspective. And directors have a lot more responsibilities. So I I had, I was able to do that. I was able to assist a lot. My passion was always and has been is new work. Um, It's really interesting that I'm doing so many revivals <laughs> because, because my, you know, what I think about the you know, as I say often, like you know, to revive means to give new life, and so when I think about doing a revival, the only way I will accept it is if I can feel if I feel like I know my way in to give it new life. Um, but but there are so many stories that are that need to be told, and so I wasn't trying to build a resume by doing like damn Yankees and Oklahoma. You know, I wasn't trying to do the circuit of regional theaters every summer to to build my resume that way. I, I did like NAMP five times. You know, I was like, new musicals, new musicals. Like that was always my passion. New voices, new musicals. Let's talk to new communities. Let's show characters we've never seen before. Let's make sure that we're looking at women's characters with great rigor to ensure that you know, we are making them whole beings on the page before they hit the stage. I like to be involved in shows really early on. So that's always been my passion. So I, I didn't take a um, a resume building route. I kind of did like a soul building route to get to where I am. Yeah. And
0: what is the process like as a director, of sort of setting the tone for the rehearsal room of kind of keeping control, but at the same time, not being too kind of mean <laughs> about it? Or...
1: Well, I, I um, one of the first things that I say is um, I never raise my voice. Um, I'm a firm believer. <clears throat> and I, I actually came to this not as a professional, but as a parent. Um, I think I, I actually think I am a, I know I am a better director because I am a parent. That might be, may not be true for everyone, but that is true for me. A lot of the things that I have learned about myself, I learned because I have to lead a room every single day of my life. (laughs) And the consequences of the room I lead are the biggest consequences of my life. And I have realized that it's the kindness, it's the respect. You cannot be out of control and in control at the same time. So I'm not a person who yells and screams. Um, I'm not a person who feels like I have to demean to get someone to do what I want. I really do believe that it's the affirmation and the empowerment. I do impress upon everyone how important it is what we are doing because the consequence Of our success is that hundreds of people have jobs. And we share that. All of us together share that responsibility. And so I I do think it's really important. I'm like, hey, I understand if you are a parent, if you are a caretaker, if you have things going on in your life. Otherwise, phones down in rehearsals. There's always something to learn, and there we have to grow ourselves as artists. And that means being in the space, fully in it figuring out ways that we can contribute to this story to make it better. I am not going to walk in the door with all the answers. I tried to hire the best clay in the world to make the most beautiful piece of art we can. And every single person in that room is a part of that creation. So I really, the way that I run a room is the way that I believe is most empowering to the humans in the room, the best way that they can be valued because what what we want to make is something of great value. And that is not gonna be made in spite of the artist, it's gonna be made because of the artist.
0: And do you find that your experience as an actor has informed sort of how you deal with actors in the casting process or in the rehearsal room or?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I love actors so much. I'm like, I love them so much because I I know how hard it is. You know, there's not a day when there's a blizzard and I look up and go, oh my God, there's somebody like getting on a train to get to a matinee today. You know, like I I feel it in my bones because I remember it so well. It took me years to not like, to to not think like, oh, this is the time I can't eat anymore because I have to, you know, do a show. You know, there's, there's just, there's so many sacrifices. Every time I go to a wedding, every time I go to a family event in the summertime, I, I missed 10 years of these. And I know that like there's there's a cost for what we do, you know, um, and so I, I love actors. And when I think about casting, you know, I've said this like a thousand times, but I remember going into casting is, you know, when I was younger and they would be like eating sandwiches and they would look like they just rolled out of bed. And meanwhile, like I had been up for hours warming up, like putting on makeup, like, you know, getting all ready. And then I was like, this is how you rolled out. And so when I do casting, I get up, I, I seldom ever wear makeup. I mean, I'm wearing makeup for you today because we're doing a podcast, but I never wear makeup. I'm like such a, you know, low key person. Um, but I do make, an effort to let the actors know I know what you did for me and I reciprocate the time that you put in by showing up by not shoving a sandwich down my throat while you're singing by looking up and taking in the gift that you were giving me you know all of those things to me really matter because I think an actor should be also looking to say do you want to work with me and I'm, and I, I want to earn the respect of them saying yes, right.
0: And a unique kind of experience that I'd be curious to ask about was co-directing on the Notebook with Michael Greif, yeah. and what was that process like of sort of figuring out the collaboration and?
1: Well, it's the great thing is Michael and I have been friends for years. Um, all those companies of rent that I did every I did with him <laughs> like you know for for many of them some of them I did with Mark Manta, but a lot of them I did with Michael um we were in Australia together you know we we did a lot of traveling together um and we've known each other for a long time we've maintained a beautiful friendship he was one of the first people to hold my daughter when she was born you know like we we've been friends for a long time um so when he called me and said, Hey, I, I'd love to talk with you about this show. Uh, I, I was very curious. I'm like, you don't need a co-director. You know, what I'm <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And then the more we talked about the show, and the more that he explained to me why it was important that that he was like, I want you because we've cast the show. In a uh, multicultural way. And it's really important that we get this right. And this is after the death of George Floyd and after the conversations around authentic representation and not just, you know, multiracial casting, but how are we really truly honoring the bodies that are on stage and making sure that it's contributing to the story in meaningful ways. And when he said that to me, I knew I had something valuable to offer to the production. And that's what made the collaboration so great is because we deeply respected each other. Like we weren't like, you know, speed dating to do this job. We had had about 27 years of friendship under our belts. Um, And we, and both of us knew that we had a superpower to offer right? And and we also knew that during the course of this, I was like, I can grow from learning from him. Like we, we learned from each other during this process, which is, I think, the most beautiful thing. You know, Michael and I talk all the time. It was a glorious experience. Becca and Ingrid and Michael and I and, and Carmel and Jeffrey are just like, we just adore each other. And it was, in terms of a creative team, um, it was beautiful experience. Beautiful experience. I cannot wait for the show to come to New York.
0: And when you're directing a show like that that's based on a piece of source material, how much do you look at that source material or try to sort of stay away from it? Or I know different people have different philosophies about that.
1: Um, I, I, I look at it all once. Um, I I, I knew, I knew the notebook from past history, right? I, I try not to go too deep because then sometimes my brain gets confused of like what's in the play and what was in the, you know, like what goes where, right? I know the way that my brain works and we can only be true to what's on our page, And we can't rely on anyone's institutional history of like, I know this so well and fill in the blanks. We really have to make sure that if no one has seen this, we're telling a whole story without having, you know, any other material feeding into this. So that's where I'm really focusing on is the story that we are, that we are charged to tell in the way that we are telling it. Um, right. but I do look at it all. I just don't let that be my guide. I let the piece that we're doing be the guide.
0: And you mentioned that you like to do a lot of kind of historical research as a director. And what was that like when you were directing the piece about Ethel Waters?
1: That oh, oh my gosh! I love that you talked about the piece. Um, I learned so much about Ethel Waters. I went on such a deep dive on her. Oh, his eyes on the Sparrow. Oh my goodness. I I did not fully know her contribution as an artist in our industry. I I didn't, I fully, like that show taught me so much. And in the, in the telling of that story, um, the set designer and I, Tammy and I talked a lot about what are things that are lasting? And we used um, stained glass windows as like these beautiful moments in time that we captured in her life because I just wanted something that felt like, you know, art lasts forever. And so I just wanted to create like this, this image that made, an, that the audience continued to look at while we were telling this part of the story that just stayed with you. You know, that, that there was a... a a visual representation of this moment. And so when you said that, all of a sudden I saw like a series of stained glass windows and the story for me is so vivid because I have two points of contact. Not only Daniel Lee Greaves like gorgeous performance of it but also these beautiful like crystallized moments of her life that were so impactful. There's so much about her I didn't know until I started researching.
0: And what was it like to cast that particular show and sort of create that one-person relationship with the audience?
1: Oh, well, I'm grateful that I really early on knew exactly who I wanted to play it. Um, so that I was like, oh, this is Danielle. Like, I just felt her presence. I felt like and I'm so grateful she said yes because she was the person I was dreaming about playing it. Um, and. And it, what's great about that show is this person comes out and they don't need anything from the audience. You know, sometimes you one one person shows and the, the show, you know, every protagonist has something that they like want, need. She doesn't need anything. This character has a great deal of generosity. And I felt like when I read it, that what she was giving to the audience was this beautiful gift of history that we would that we didn't know? And what's really interesting about Ethel Waters' life is like all of these things like connect the dots. Where I was like, I didn't know she was there and there and there and there. And you begin to see that this human has this extraordinary ripple throughout entertainment, religion. Like it's it's really interesting. Like all of her interesting nexus. Um, and I, so it felt like. With the audience, she had the gift of her voice. She had the gift of her incredible um, resilience. Her, her, you know, the fact that she stood up for herself. The fact that I mean, she, there's just so much there, you know, through her abuse, through her. She, she's in. She in, She's such an inspiration. That this is that this is the a one-woman show of extraordinary generosity. Right. And a a very
0: different kind of piece that was centered on one person that you did was the concert tour with Ben Vereen. And what was that like, kind of collaborating with him and putting
1: that together? Oh, what a legend. I mean, an absolute legend. Um, He did a concert at the Kennedy Center and, you know, Mr. Barine knows what he wants, right? Like, there's no question about it. I mean, there's, and for that, that was much more about the execution. You know, it was all about, you know, what comes next. And, and really, um, it, he was another person that's, it was really a masterclass it was really like, make sure the lights are right, make sure things come on time and sit back and take in the genius. You know, like it really was like, I can't take a lot of credit for, for, for you know, his unbelievable, his unbelievable storytelling, um, which in so many, like there's a, just a generation where it's just, it's different, right? When you see him, you know, Maurice Hines, Leslie Uggams, you know, there's a generation of, there's a kind of storyteller that is different than the storytellers today. And it's, I, it was incredible. It was incredible. I was very fortunate to be so young and have such a great honor.
0: And so I would love to now move to asking about the whiz, which we were talking about a little bit earlier. And how did this kind of come about? Was it your idea to do a revival, or were you
1: brought on for it? Or I was brought on. Wouldn't it be great if it was my idea? No. (laughs) Hey, everybody! You know what we should do? No, it was. um, I was. I was called. I was. I got a phone call about it, and um, and I was shocked. Um, and I was, you know, extraordinarily honored, um, and shocked and excited and overwhelmed and, you know, all the things. It's, it's a huge part of, uh, the legacy of Black theater. It was a defining moment for so many people. I mean, I I can't tell you the amount of people who've come up to me and said, oh my gosh, the first time I saw The Wiz. Like, it, it really is like, um, an extraordinary, impactful piece of theater. And it's, um, it's incredible to think about doing that now. Right. And what sort of makes it relevant,
0: especially today for a modern audience? And have there been any changes made
1: in that regard or? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I say this all the time, I, I'm doing this on uh, my audiences too. I have a a, a 12 year old and a 13 year old. So (laughs) I'm like, so when I think about this being a gift to this generation, I think about what it is that they are seeking. I think about what they're navigating. I think about, you know, when I read, it it was really interesting to watch and then to go back and read. And when I read The Wiz, I went to first, you know, Frank's original book and read it. Um, and, and then read the history of that original book. And then of course, I've known The Wizard of Oz for years and years, but I watched it again. And then I watched the movie, The Wiz. And then I watched online versions of the of the musical. Um, and then when I read The Wiz, the script again, What really stood out to me were the themes of the show. That this is a girl who feels like she doesn't belong, who is seeking her tribe, who is challenged by fear and has to learn to overcome it, who's offered an easy way out and doesn't take it, who, puts her faith in someone who promises something they can't deliver. And then in the end, who realizes that she was brave, that she found her tribe and that she has everything that she needs and she has great purpose. And I was like, oh, that's the story I want to tell my girls. And so, when we started looking very deeply at this revival, it was all about what are our tent in this story and how are we ensuring that we're leaning towards this? Because as I am looking at this generation growing in this moment, you know, you can say, oh, poppies, that's a drug. So social media, right? What are all the drugs that exist out there? Like there's so many Ways that you can take something that is distracting you from your purpose. So we have a lot of ways that we're exploring the themes of the show that um, more you know mo- the most important thing is we want it to be timeless. We don't want to make anything feel like it's too entrenched in any particular time. But we do want to make sure that we are giving this to this generation and allowing them to feel a sense of belonging in this story. Right. And so The Wiz being
0: a show that has so many iconic performances attached to it on stage and on screen,
1: what has the process been like of casting it? Casting The Wiz was hard. <laughs> and the hardest part for me, unlike any show I've ever done, was it was really hard for a lot of people to not do imitations of people they love. And I kept saying like, I wanna see your version of this. I wanna see you know, people that I knew very well and I knew their voices, they were doing like character voices. And I was like, whoa, this show is so in people's bodies. They wanna be it. And it was really hard for some people to find their way in because I was really looking for their authentic version of it and 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 to break them away from doing an imitation of someone else so unlike any other show that i've ever cast this show um is so entrenched in so many actors like bodies that it was really hard for them to find their way in um but the ones that did uh have i mean i'm i'm so we start rehearsals in a month and i'm like beside myself i can't wait yeah
0: and has anything sort of changed about your process given the way that the show
1: is premiering on tour first and then on Broadway or? Yeah, it's a, it's very different to do this this way, right? Usually when you do a show, you know, whether you're in a regional or you're coming in, you're thinking about like the, the big version. And then, you know, as you go on tour, you think about how do you condense that version down? What have you learned about it? The, the, oh, The challenge in this is that we have to create the big version of the show, knowing that we're gonna learn about it from Broadway and it is either going to expand or contract, right? We're gonna learn these first few months about it. And so we have to be nimble enough to know one of these two things are gonna happen and we just have to have enough time and runway to make allotment for that to come to pass, right? For us to be able to create and iterate on that. So it's a, it's a tight runway to be able to make those adjustments, but we've all talked them through. <laughs> but that that's the, you know, usually a show like running for a year on Broadway and then they'll start talking about a tour. and, But this one has a really unique challenge of, you know, having just a little time, you know, between the two. And I know you mentioned that you
0: generally prefer new work over revivals, but are there any shows that you would sort of be interested in reimagining
1: that? You know what? Nothing that comes to mind. You know, there is, it, it's so funny. Um, I have this, uh, when I started dating my husband. <clears throat> This is way off topic, but (laughs) when I started dating my husband, I'd always, up until him, I'd always been like, I have this plan, and this is how I'm gonna execute my plan, and we're blah blah blah, and then we'll marry on the stage. You know, I kind of had this thing, and with him, I was like, you know what? Just two weeks at a time. We're gonna have fun until we don't, right? And that's how I'm kind of approaching my career. Is I I don't want to have such a long runway and queue that I'm not able to accept something amazing that arrives, right? That I'm super passionate about. I know people who are like booked for six years. I'm not, I was real. I had a very, you know, COVID certainly tighten my schedule and I've had a bananas two years, right? <laughs> like getting all the shows up, but, but I'm really open to seeing what presents itself. There's nothing that is, you know, burning in my soul that I'm like, oh my gosh, I must do this show. But there are themes that I'm excited about exploring. And I feel like when the right piece comes along, I'm going to be able to say that's, that's the thing, you know? Um, So I, 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 there's, there's nothing that I've seen that I've been like, oh, I have to do that. And
0: I think that's actually a great note to end on. And thank you so much for doing this interview. It's been such a pleasure to talk
1: to you and, It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And it's been a, a great pleasure being in conversation with you today.
0: Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I will be joined by my guest, legendary Broadway critic Frank Rich, who served as the chief drama critic for the New York Times from 1980 to 1993. You won't want to miss that episode. So make sure to tune back in for that. And thanks for listening.